Hi, folks. I'm Tom Stern, an alcoholic. It's good to see you. I think the uh, Saturday evening spot's reserved for the geriatric group, it looks like. <laughs> Alan on and me, that's, uh, that's uh, it's a mixed kind of feeling when you're the oldest rat in the barn. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. I'm really pleased to be with my buddies. I'd met everybody here in the speaker bunch except, uh, except Rusty. And uh, we met her at the airport, and I was looking for a six-foot cowboy. And here comes Rusty, yeah. <laughs> and that was just, a, just, it's just been a really delightful weekend, and, and uh, uh, what a powerful talk, eh? That was really super good stuff. And it's just been a, a, a super conference. I was telling Cal just last night, I said, Cal, I'm really glad to <laughs> be with you out here in the Ozark. <laughs> Good to be back in Arkansas. Got some good buddies here, and it's good to see all of you. And it's good to be in a just a bit of be- beautiful piece of God's world. And here we are, a bunch of folk who, I guess, to a casual observer, you know, if somebody just drove by here, they probably will. Or if somebody just walked by and took a look at this group, we would look much like any other group. Don't look radically different. Well, some of us are a little shop-worn, but, but by and large, we are a fairly average slice of life. And if anybody was conjecturing about what this group was, they probably would come up with any given explanation for why we meet. So we're much like any other group, but in a sense, we're very different from any other group And if you listen to us, if you can sort of back off and be a fly on the wall, you'll notice some things about us that are different. We laugh a little easier than the average group. I've been telling the same jokes for 30 years to the same people. (laughs) And we laugh easy. We cry easy. And my God, somebody can tell me they had a kid and I'll cry. We cry real easy. We listen to the spoken word more than any other group of human beings combined, I think. And we listen to stories that are remarkably similar and hang on every word as if we'd never heard it before. And what is it about this group that's different? What is it that makes us like that? We are an unusual group in a lot of ways. We are truly a group who would normally not mix. And we're folks who have looked death bang in the eye and live again. We're folks who've been blind and see again. We're folks who have known bondage and are free. And I guess that's part of the reason that, that we participate in life a little bit more vibrantly and seem to enjoy it a little bit more. So I'm really glad to, glad, glad to, to, to be here with you and to, to have an opportunity to share. I told Rusty that that was the best talk I ever heard a Republican make. I don't know why she couldn't get in to see the president. I was was down in Austin, Texas a couple years ago, and you might have gathered what I am. And uh, we had a little time on Sunday, and the fellow said, you want to go for a ride and see some some stuff? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a curious guy. I really, really like to see where I am. And we went riding, and about an hour later, drove up to a rather ostentatious house and walked in and a few minutes later I was sitting having tea with Lady Bird. 
Now, I don't know why she couldn't get in to see the president. <laughs> That's her inventory, I guess. <laughs> Y'all a durable bunch. You run these marathons at night. If you, if you get tired or worn out or anything like that, just, just go and take a nap. I don't care. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is 56 years old, a little over it. And part of the reason I say it's a mixed blessing to be the oldest rat in the barn, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting commentary and a little bit concern-provoking when a guy with uh, not quite 35 years is the oldest rat in the barn when we gather. I was a little concerned about that. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't going to be but one in here that was the oldest rat in the barn, I'd just assume it'd be me. <laughs> That's the only book that Alcoholics Anonymous has ever printed that I didn't have. And you gave me the, the one that... Uh, I, I want to do what I always do. I, 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 I basically just want to share case history of one alcoholic. We say we only have one story, and that's true in the sense that history doesn't change and the things that happened in my life one second ago will never change. What does change is my insight, my understanding, my awareness of, of what happened in my life. And the thing I've observed is that over the years the story does in, indeed change radically. And what I understood to be my story of alcoholism uh, when I came into this program is radically different today than it was then. And, and it's also a dynamic story. It, it, it really is not a destination, this thing called sobriety. It's a journey. And, and, uh, and so it's an ever-changing, it's an emerging story. And, and that's, uh, that's what I want to do is share the... the I, I essentially want to do, two, do three things. Now, when you do a lot of talking like some of us do, one of the dangers is, well, a lot of dangers. One is that you get carried away with your own voice. That's, that's one. That's an imminent danger. Another is that you can sort of get into a thing where you're operating out of your head instead of your heart. You, know, you, you get to telling the, the, the essential same story, and the first thing you know, it's on automatic pilot. You start sounding like a parrot instead of really saying something. And, 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 and I've had the privilege, the opportunity, the obligation, really, uh, to be able to share my story of recovery hundreds, no, thousands of times. And what I want to do tonight, even though it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, is I want to do it one more time. And I want to do it not with just some anecdotes from the past. I don't want to regale you with barroom humor. I don't want to get into a whole lot of pontificating and advice giving. You know, I basically want to share. I want to share the story of a guy who developed the disease alcoholism. And I don't want to just tell you the story of that. I want to share with you what that disease was like, the best I possibly can. Even though I've pulled it out hundreds of times, I want to pull it out one more time and share with you the best I can what it was like. I want to spend a little bit of time on that. Then I want to share with you what I honest to God think is the miracle of what happened. Now, what was it that happened in the life of a young man that's caused him to have a brand new way to live for almost 35 years? I want to share that with you. What was it about this guy that caused him to never have another drink from the first meeting he walked into. And I don't pretend to know the answer to that, but I think that's a remarkably important thing. What happened? What was it that made that a fact in my life? And I want to share that. And then I want to share as much as I can about the adventure of recovery. Now, I'm not somebody who has suffered through many years of sobriety. I'm a guy who has thoroughly enjoyed life and continue to do so. I'm still as active in Alcoholics Anonymous as anybody I know. 
I'm still as dynamically involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I still have just as much fun. I was sitting in my home group a couple of weeks ago, and a fellow, older guy there in town, I was telling some old war story about 12-step work or something like that, and he was sitting there enthralled with all that, but most folks don't get a chance to do a lot of 12-step work now. And he was just taking that all in, and he said, Tom, could I ask you, was that doing your pink cloud period? And I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it was. And I'm still in it. <laughs> and that's a fact. That's a fact. Because what I found is that it lasts as long as I do the things that produce it. And when I quit doing those things, then it quits happening. So that's what I want to share. I want to share with you why that's a fact in my life and what it is, what it is about. I used to think that my beginning in Alcoholics Anonymous was unique. I used to think I started out differently than other people. That, and, I, and I don't mean just in that my case is different. I really thought that it was unique. I, but, but I've long since stopped believing that. I believe I started in Alcoholics Anonymous just like every other alcoholic I ever met. found myself sitting in a meeting. Didn't believe I belonged there. Didn't believe I was an alcoholic. Thought I was too young. Thought I was too smart. Knew that inside I was really a world beater who never had the right break. Didn't really believe I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. Really didn't believe in the purpose. Didn't want to become a member. Sounds like everybody I've ever heard tell their story. And I found myself sitting there troubled about being, alcoholic, being, a, being in Alcoholics Anonymous 24 years old, sitting in a group contemplating where I, whether I could get another chance to live. And by any measure, I should have just been starting to live. And here I am looking in the Legion of the Damned to see if I can get another shot at it. To add insult to injury, I was in jail. Now, that was no novelty for me. I'd been in jail more times than I could possibly remember, nor no, no, no remember to this day. Uh, I really don't know how many times I've been in jail, apparently enough, because I haven't been since I got sober. <laughs> so apparently it was just the right number that I went. That was a routine. I think if I knew the number of towns I'd been in, I could come close. But I was never in a town for as much as a week that I didn't go to jail that I recall. This one was different, though. It was a penitentiary, a maximum custody penitentiary, state prison, southern Michigan, Jackson, Michigan. Different than an overnight drunk tank, different than a pea farm, different than a stockade, different than a rinky-dink kind of lockup. This time, it was deadly serious business. And I was serving a sentence of 15 years for a crime that I didn't even remember committing, nor remember to this day but a crime that I know full well I did commit. Uh, uh, you know, I, I could be kind to myself and say that it was an unavoidable accident, but that's not the way I see it. You know, I think when a drunk chooses to drive blind drunk blacked out down the main street of a city and runs down innocent people, accident's not the right word, and I don't use the word. I, uh, my crime was as horrible as any I know because you know, I woke up to the realization that I had taken the lives of two fine young people. And so here I sat in a, in, a, in, a, in a maximum custody prison, not only hindered by the resistance to solution, not only hindered by the denial and the delusional thinking that was mine, but hindered by a, an, an absolute mountain of guilt. I felt utterly ashamed to be an alcoholic anonymous. I don't mean ashamed to be a member. I mean utterly ashamed to even be in a place where hope and help were the topic of conversation. I felt utterly ashamed to be breathing when two fine young folks no, one, no longer were because of me. And it simply adds to the miracle when I think about that setting and those conditions and to realize that that broken and beaten young guy 
walked into that meeting and found a brand new way to live. Never had a drink since. And that's essentially what I want to say. My, my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, again, was much like most people I'd heard. I didn't really believe I was an alcoholic. I said I was because I hated to be the only guy in the group that wasn't. And so people say they were, and I'd say, yeah, me too. But it was just words that didn't mean a thing. And the way I, I recall it, yeah, I essentially started to listen. I never missed a meeting the whole time I was in Jackson Prison, 42 months. But I never identified for a long, long time with any alcoholic that I ever heard. I was in the program for almost two years before I ever heard one single speaker with whom I identified. Now I identify with practically everybody I hear. I think they're making a better grade of drunks or something. I, I identify with everybody. I, but that was not the case then. And I kept going to meetings. I'm not sure why. I think the essential reason that I kept going was that I was just out of fight. I didn't have any fight left. I had no resistance, and I couldn't muster enough to do anything different. And so I kept going. And my basic process in the program was that I would listen to the people tell their stories. And what it seemed to me like they were saying was that they were alcoholic because when they got drunk, they got in trouble. Well, my God, if that's what it was about, I was alcoholic. had been that way all my life because I had never been in trouble that I wasn't drunk. Never went to jail sober, never lost jobs sober, never wrecked his car sober, never lost a wife sober, never woke up in the wrong town sober. Every time I ever got in trouble, I was drunk. So if that's what it was, then I had it. And then I started listening a little bit more deeply and saw that that wasn't what they were talking about at all. And then I started looking back and trying to get a handle on some of the things that were in this thing that caused that peculiar kind of misery that Bill was talking about that fixed it so that I could not that I could not not drink. What was that? That was an inside job. It was something that happened on the inside of me. And I started, over time, looking back and starting to get a handle. And I want to I just hit on two things and then move on that I think were essential in the development of this disease in my life. Now, I'm not somebody who tries to cast a net and drag out everybody in the world into the causation of the disease. I, and yet, you know, wouldn't I be stupid to think that my environment had little or nothing to do with it. You know, of course it had something to do with it. And I want to share two things with you that I think were, were fundamental to my disease. If I had to look back and identify the single place from which my disease started, I, I, would, I would narrow it down to two things that were significant. First was in, uh, in, my, in my family life. I, uh, my dad, uh, somebody was talking about the importance of the male, uh, the, uh, the same-sex parent. Now, when I look back and, and, and look at what was it that shaped this guy that got in so much trouble and had so much difficulty, what was it shaped him? I think back to that family. My folks broke up when I was four years old. My dad left, and I never saw him again until I was long in recovery. And I didn't understand what that meant. You know, I didn't understand anything about what that meant in my life until I had a son of my own, and I started to see what a father does. My son taught me about fatherhood. And I never understood. If you had asked me early in my recovery, I would have said, you know, I had a father, but I never knew him. He went away. Big deal. I had no earthly ideas, any significance to it whatsoever until I started watching my son. And I started to realize how tremendously important the same-sex parent is you know, for a lot of vital reasons. I didn't understand how important a father is to a son until I started watching mine, watching me. And watch that little fella start to emulate the things that he saw his dad do. Start to pick up some of the same peculiar characteristics that his dad had. Start to look to his dad when he was in trouble. You know, mothers are tremendously important. 
I didn't see her. I went to see some sheep today. I never saw a single one following his daddy. They, they were all following mama. Daddy didn't have nothing they wanted. I don't reckon. But there are drawbacks to the mother when you're talking about a boy. There's some things a mother doesn't do as well as a father for a boy. But one can't teach him to go to the bathroom very good. They don't know how. They don't know how to point or nothing. They just... Uh, <laughs> and there's some things that a person learns from the sex, same-sex parent, I believe, that are tremendously important in the process of growing up. You watch what happens when I watch my kids when they get in trouble. Now, they love their mother and they're as close to her as her skin. But when they get in deep doo-doo, old dad, because they're looking for old dad. And what I started to see was that from my father... I never had an opportunity to learn the things that are so important to learn, like intimacy. Intimacy. Learning to feel close to another human being who looks like me. I never had anybody to show me what a man looked like. What a, a grown-up, actual man looked like. Never had anybody to teach me to trust so that I could solve problems in a confident kind of way. Never went hunting with a man in my life till I was grown. Never went fishing with a man in my life till I was grown. And I didn't really understand that till I started to understand through the eyes of my own son. I'll come back to that. The other thing was, if I look for the foundation, I think the ultimate foundation with me had to do in the matters of the Spirit. Now, I was, an, and I mean absolutely, no criticism or, or sarcastic stuff toward anybody's belief. Uh, this might be Bible country here. I have the gentle impression that this might be Bible country. <laughs> When I saw this tent, I started looking for a snake. I, 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 <laughs> the only place I ever seen a church and fire department combined. <laughs> so you may relate to what I'm going to talk about. I think when I look back and realize what went wrong, what was it that happened to this young fellow? I remember you know, I was born down in the deep south. I was born down there. I don't like to admit it, but I was born in South Carolina. Only good news is we left South Carolina quick as we could walk. And I grew up in North Carolina. But I, I was introduced early on to that fundamentalist Bible belt rumping, thumping stuff that they call religion. And for some people, that works great. They, they, they thrive on it. They love it. They seek it out. Didn't click with me. And I remember as a little boy, and I'm not talking about a wild teenager. I remember as a little boy, when I started to go through the paces of following the women folk in my family to church, I remember the innocent kid singing Jesus Loves Me, drawing pictures, reading poems, playing games. I remember that. I remember much more clearly when the seeds of doubt started to appear. And I started to realize as a little boy that I simply didn't believe what they seemed to believe. And I started to go through those innumerable conversion experiences and each time witness the glee and joy of all the people in the church and to myself saying, but I don't feel different. Ain't nothing changed. And I remember the enormous guilt when I started to realize as a little kid that I didn't believe that stuff. I didn't believe it. The fear associated with that. Something as omnipotent, as fearsome as God and a child troubling to disbelieve. And I remember how that set up, for me, a very deep-seated conflict in my life. Conflict to me is a very simple notion. It's feeling one way on the inside and acting another way on the outside. 
feeling one way on the inside, acting another way on the outside. And that's exactly what my life came, became, where I started to have feelings I couldn't share, feelings I couldn't talk about with anybody, and yet they were there. And I started to live that kind of dual, tension-ridden existence of a young fellow at war with himself. And that was the seedbed of my alcoholism because all of that distorted all of my relationships with life. And I started to have that kind of isolation where I, I locked myself into secrecy and never really opened up with other human beings. No mystery to me why I drank. Because when I found booze, my God, I found the great answer. I didn't find a problem. I found a great answer. The only thing I didn't understand is why I always drank too much except I guess the other name for the disease of alcoholism is the disease of more. It just made sense to me that if so little did a, did, did a little good, more is going to do more good. And, and so it's no, no secret to me why I drank. And frankly, I, I have very little regrets about the fact that I drank because it beats some of the alternatives. I think I would have been in trouble if I had never taken a drink. And for my first period of drinking, I was essentially a pro, an excessive problem drinker. With me, it lasted a, a, a couple of years, I think. Uh, I think, as Bill said, I, I, was, I was a guy that very quickly got the obsessive reaction to booze, but I'm one who thinks that there are, there are three basic dimensions of alcoholism. One I've already indicated, the spiritual thing, I think is the basis, and then the other is, a, I think it's just like it says in the book, that it's a mental obsession, but it's not just a symptom, a mental symptom of a disease. There's more to full-blown alcoholism than that. And, I, and I, I had that kind of abnormal mental obsession about booze. And then when I was 18 years old, I crossed the line and lost the ability to predict my behavior if I took a drink. And it was to never be the same. And so I started to understand something about that this is what the disease alcoholism looked like in my life. Somehow or other, when it came to booze, I was not like other people. If I drank, I got in trouble. If I didn't drink, I drank. And I started to understand that, that when it came to booze, I was not like other folks, never will be. And I have to accept that. For me, the choice is very simple. I can either drink, God knows I can drink, but not very successfully. Or I can go the rest of my life and never take another drink. And that's finally the point that I got to. And finally got to the key point in this program where I admitted to myself for the first time, and it was several months into the program, that I was absolutely and made that admission to me that I could not drink. How vitally important. I think the one thing in the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous that's absolutely non-negotiable is that. If I can't get to the point that I admit to me, never mind the rest of the world, to me, that I can't drink. Somehow or other, there's something about me, I'm powerless over booze and I'm unmanaged, my life is unmanageable. Yeah, I never really understood fully, never experienced that. I'll tell you how that works with a, with, with a guy, in case you haven't experienced it. First time I ever encountered the obsession sober and knew it, I'd been sober about three and a half years. I was as active in the program then as I am now. I was a, a, a fairly contented guy. I had to handle a, a little bit of a difficult task. I had to, to fly a plane, not drive it, but ride in it up, up to the state of Michigan. And, and, and I had not thought of a drink for a good while. Got on the plane. It was a jet. I'd never been on a jet. They'd just come out. And, and I guess I was a little excited about that. And I sat down in front of the plane, and you know how they do. You don't even get leveled out, and they start hustling booze. And they started up the aisle with that buggy. And I don't know why, but all at once I heard that lady talking about what she was serving. And I heard her. And all at once I was overcome with an absolute gut-wrenching obsession to drink. Now, I'm not talking about delusional thinking. 
I'm not talking about maybe a drink would be nice. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not talking about here I am 30,000 feet in the air. Who would know? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an absolute obsession to drink. I knew I was going to drink. And I knew I didn't want to drink. And I understood for the first time what I'm saying. What do you do when you're overcome with an obsession to drink and you're 30,000 feet in the air with a bunch of civilians? Call your sponsor? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Even that high school dropout couldn't handle that one. <laughs> Catch a meeting? <laughs> Uh, yeah, what you do, I, what I do, you listen awfully close when you ain't in trouble, because if you wait till you're in trouble, try to figure it out, you done waited too late, and you're usually gone. And what I did was what I learned in meetings. One, and the next thing I did was to do what I'd learned, was when I don't know what else to do and where else to turn, ask God me. And the obsession left as quickly as it came. But that's what I had to understand and accept the fact of myself that that's me. I simply cannot deal with booze like other people. You know, I described the kind of aggravated case that I, that I was, and, and, and I really believe that the most troublesome area in this whole disease of alcoholism is in that spiritual area, in the spiritual area. I personally have never met an alcoholic, maybe one here tonight, and very few Alanons, who hasn't had extreme difficulty in the spiritual realm, not a one. I sponsored a, a, a two Catholic show, a, a, a priests and one Protestant minister, one of the most, the, the most pained people I've ever known in spiritual life. Deeply troubling. How do we deal with that? How do we deal? How do we deal with a young guy who, 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 who built up that enormous frustration and fear and anger and resentment and, and, and reached a point where he identified himself as an atheist? How do we deal with that? What do we do? How do we deal with a guy who walks into a meeting and doesn't even know the Our Father? How do we approach it? Thank God for exactly the way we approach it in our God. I used to gather that I've, I've been around here for an old while, uh, a good while, and and uh, and I'm I'm a pretty fundamental type of guy. I'm, I'm a, I guess a fairly typical old old time member of AA. I'm not interested in new wave sobriety and phase two sobriety and onward and upward and new movements and all that. I'm a, I'm pretty much a pretty fundamental guy, and and uh, and I'm not one who wants to change the program. Now I know this is 1991, and I know our book's a little antiquated and. We don't use terms like our women folk anymore. <clears throat> but I don't want to change it. I, go, I don't know how much we'd change it before we screwed it up. And I'm extremely grateful for exactly the way it's laid out. Listen to how we deal in this program with a guy like me, an aggravated case. We say that we came to believe. We don't talk about conversion experiences. We don't talk about turning over new leaves. The only guy I ever heard had good luck with that was a fellow named Adam in that <laughs> leaf-turning business. We don't get into that. We don't get into timetables and deadlines. We say that we came to believe. We talk about a gradual experience. We don't say you got to do it by next Tuesday. We say that we do it as we're able to do it. We come to believe. And nobody makes any demands about when we must do it. In what? A power. A power greater than me. Kind of like a, I heard a fellow talking about, said he, he asked his sponsor one, one time about the spiritual thing, told him he was having a whole lot of trouble with this God thing. And he said the, his sponsor told him the only thing that he needed to know about God was that he wasn't it. And, 
And that's pretty much, I think, the way that the approach works in Alcoholics Anonymous. This thing of a power. We don't join the Baptist church, Catholic church, any church. It says that we come to believe in a power. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. I was sitting in it one time, I think the first time it ever came through to me clear. I was sitting in it, I got to get, be careful about talking to Yankees. I, I got to go to New York next week and, and uh, I get talking about Yankees up there, I may not get back. <laughs> but I was sitting in a meeting and there was a Yankee there talking <laughs> and he was from New York City. And I was fairly new in the program and, and I was just, just raw. And, and this guy was talking about that he had trouble with the thing there. And he said the first power he ever believed in was a Fifth Avenue bus in New York City. I thought, geez, that's stupid. And he said, you know, there's a bus riding up down the street hauling people. He couldn't do that. It's a power greater than him. He accept that bus is his. <laughs> and the thing that really surprised me was that nobody called him down. You know, yeah, I wouldn't, they wouldn't have stood for that where I grew up. <laughs> bus is his power. You got Nobody said, here, boy, this is a spiritual program. You can't talk like that in here. Nobody said a word. And I understood what the freedom was about, begin, at least began to, and, st and started to understand what the responsibility to believe in a power, to believe that there was something in this world that could make a difference with me. There was something that could save my life. Thank God for that. Thank God that I didn't have to look toward getting restored to the thing that I, that I, that I absolutely rebelled at as a child. I still ain't restored to that fellow alcoholics and don't plan on being. Thank God for that. Come to believe in a power. You know, the first power that I ever believed in in my life, I could not have explained to anybody. But I started to do what I've heard hundreds of others describe doing in this program. I wanted to believe. And I started to become aware that in the meetings of the recovery group in Jackson Prison, there was something there. There was a power in that room that was greater than the people in that room. Now, I couldn't name it. I could simply feel it. And all it was was 300 convicts. But across the board, we were people who identified ourselves as hopeless cases. And I'm not talking about the power of collective strength. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a power that was greater than us. I'm talking about a power that I perceived to be one that was bigger than all of us and could make us better than we were. And I started to believe. The first prayer, the first mature, honest prayer I ever uttered in my life was to the power that I felt in that group. Now, I couldn't have explained that power, but I didn't have to explain it to anybody. I simply had to believe that it could suffer. And the first prayer I ever uttered was to a prayer of that kind of enigmatic quality. And then to believe that that power could restore me to some semblance of sanity. Tremendously tricky area. Now, I, I work with a lot of people. I work with a lot of new people. And, and, and how tricky this area is, and I notice in working with people. Everybody comes in sort of damaged in this area, it looks to me like. And, and you know the, the, the person I hate to work with most? I hate to work with the person who comes in, whose approach is that, well, this spiritual thing ain't going to be no problem. I've always been in church. Now, I was drunk, but I was there. I was a deacon, you know, or the minister. And this ain't going to be no problem whatsoever. And I always say, oh, God. <laughs> well, and I know some people are in better shape than others in this department. But what that usually tells me is I'm dealing with somebody where nobody's home. 
It's just that same old guilt-ridden, compliant kind of stuff of saying what I'm supposed to believe, whether it has any relationship to my life or not. Any day of the week, give me some cat who says, I don't believe nothing, especially you. <laughs> then I know I'm dealing with real issues. And, and that's real. That's where I like to start. And to simply believe. Now, the real, real important thing in this thing to me is to recognize the distinction and how tricky it is to get away from the phobic fear that I'm going to be restored to something that I'm scared to death of and to recognize that what we're talking about is a power that can help me get well. Not good. I'm amazed and, and tremendously impressed with the logic of our program. What it looks to me like is that it's essentially a, program, a process of preparation and action. When I'm working with somebody and they tell me that they're having trouble with the step, I will almost invariably say to them, oh, no, you're not, whatever step they say. And they'll almost invariably say, what in the world are you talking about? And I'll almost invariably say, it ain't that one, it's the one before it. Because what I see is essentially a program of preparation and action. And when I'm hung up with something, it's because I haven't finished what it was that moved me to it. And, and how tremendously important that is in, in, this, in this area of my life. Because what I've come to do right here is believe that there's something that I can feel and believe and trust in that's going to make a difference with me. And then it simply asks me to, to act on that belief, to make a decision, a decision to turn my will and my life over to the power. It took me a while to understand a couple of things about that. One, that I wasn't going to get struck pure the minute I took that step. And I had no interest in being pure. I wasn't even real interested in being good. Uh, I tell you the darn truth, I have gotten better than I ever meant to. I... I <laughs> I did not have this in mind. I mean, I don't do nothing. I mean, nothing. I, I'm next door to Tony and ain't even been in a room, hardly. <laughs> Except carrier suitcase. I got limits on ERA, I'll tell you that. I don't do nothing. I haven't smoked for almost 14 years. Isn't that disgusting? I just don't even cuss much. Well, you know, some. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, and that's what I was afraid of. I was going to get struck righteous and, and I was going to get real good. And then I had to come to understand what the, there were two basic elements that part. One, it calls for a decision to be made by me, and then the result was up to God. All I could do is make the decision to turn loose. You know, like anybody else, over the years, I've been confronted with, with many, many, many problems. Never once have I been confronted with a problem that the power engaged in this process hasn't been equal to, none. And never once have I been confronted with anything that I couldn't engage what this step's about with the prayer that we opened this meeting with. Not a single one, not once. And that's what's important to me, is to not get caught up in some wild blue yonder lofty stuff, but to keep it very tangible, very down to earth, and very real in terms of dealing with this disease. And what this is, is basically those first three proposals have to do with establishing a relationship with some power that I believe can make a difference for me. A lot of people come into the program and stop right here. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that if all I'm interested in is a daily reprieve, if all I'm interested in is a new foundation in faith and all I want to do is survive, that's quite enough. I've known many people who have died sober, never made any pretense of going beyond this point. It's not enough, though, for someone who wants more. I personally think it has little to do with recovery. It basically has to do with survival. I think one of the other reasons that we'll tend to stop there is that most people don't want to start on step four. Most people want to hide from it. And it's the place where the real work starts. It's 
real easy to shuck and jive on those first three proposals. All you got to do is say so. Who's going to argue? Who knows what's in your head or your heart? From this point forward in the program, there's almost always tangible evidence. Real easy to tell if you've done a fourth step. If you've got paper and you've written on it to the best of your ability, as honestly as you know how, you've done the fourth step. If you haven't paper that you've written on to the best of your ability, as honestly as you know how, you have not done the fourth step. You've done something else if you think you've done it. You might have gone on to one of these mountains and stared at your navel for 30 days. Whatever, you know. It has nothing to do with the process laid out in the program of recovery in AA. This is a very simple thing. I've either done it or I haven't. And I can't kid myself about it. When I, when I did that, that step, I didn't really mean it. I never meant to do anything I, I did in the program. It kind of snuck up on me. I went to a meeting one day, fat and happy, did what wouldn't mean to do nothing, earth-shaking. Sat down and listened to the speaker. He spent the entire meeting talking about the fourth step. And he went into great detail, read part of it out of the book, talked about the critical importance of writing it. And when he got through, I went back to my cell and I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And, and I didn't mean to do what he described. I meant to do what I had in my head. You know, alcoholic's head's a dangerous place. It, it's a dangerous place. I, I've never seen anything I couldn't rationalize uh, uh, badly if I just keep it in my head. That's why it's important for me to open up and share it with me, because I get goofy if I let stuff stay in, in me too long. And, and so I, I, what I'd, I'll just tell you how silly it can get. What I meant to do, I, I had figured out what was wrong with me, and you can be sure it was somebody else's fault. Yeah, I, 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 this is a sad story now. I, you better brace yourself. I, I mentioned about my mother and father breaking up when I was four, and, and the, uh, that was bad enough. The bad news was she remarried several times. And the first one was a little old guy by the name of Alvin. And that dude drove up at my house when I was about six years old. And I knew that thing was not my daddy. I knew that. He was the most crude, obscene, vulgar man I have ever seen him. And I don't mean his language. He was just a nasty man. God knows I hated that dude. I had to call that thing, Daddy. And I mean, I burnt, I burnt the whole time I was under his tutelage and care. And I swore if I ever got big enough, I was going to whip him like a dog. And, and I went off to the army and I came back, I was too big. It would have been like whooping a dwarf. I, and I, <laughs> I never get to whoop the old fool. He died. And uh, I tell you, I ain't, I, I'm not kidding. I mean, I don't even like him dead. I, I really don't like that guy. I, I go down by his grave every once in a while to see, make sure he hadn't scratched out or something. He got, and I, you know, that's what I was focused on. Anybody who grew up under that kind of influence had to be a little weird, and I was. And that's what I meant to do is write a little story about Alvin and life's cruelties and <laughs> Founders were wise when they said to write it, because I sat down to write, pulled out the old legal pad, wrote about two lines, what I had in mind, then without any intent whatsoever, I started to write about me. And I'll tell you today much more surely than I would then, that's the most important day's work this old boy's ever done. Now, it wasn't any piece of art. It wasn't fit for archives. Not at all. It was without doubt the finest piece of work. And what it was, was three pages of scrawl. Because once I got through with the foolishness I had what, you know, I don't know if any Hemingway fans here or not, but one of the themes that Hemingway liked to strike was about the moment of truth, about the time when a man comes face to face with himself. And that's exactly what my experience was. I started to write that foolishness, and then all at once, without any intent whatsoever, the game was over. The charade was done, and all at once I started to write about me. And my hand literally flew, trying to keep up with the race of thoughts. As, as a young guy poured out his, his life, 
Now, it wasn't any well-designed fourth step, but how tremendously important, because when it got through, those three pages, I knew exactly what was wrong with me. I knew that I was an alcoholic, period, an alcoholic. And I've never doubted that fact to this day. I knew I wanted to do something about it. You know, I, my, my, I really believe that the birth of the, the origin of any maturity in my sobriety started that day. Because from that day to this, I've known why I've attended every AA meeting I've ever attended. I know exactly why I'm here tonight. I'm not here to entertain, inspire, invigorate, inter divert, or, or advise, or any of that junk. You know, God forbid that I ever lose sight of what it is I'm doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. God forbid that I ever get in my notion that I've got some holy mission to go out and help my unfortunate brothers. Uh-uh. No. I'm here to save my tokus, period. I've learned that this therapy works for me. Now, if it's helpful to somebody else, I thank my God. But don't ever let me get deluded that that's why. So I don't go to bad meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to meetings that are, that are designed to deal with my disease, whether I like them or not. And that's exactly why I'm here tonight. And that's the awareness that came, and that's what started to solidify. And I think that's really where I became a legitimate member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was no longer the guy on the sidelines. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two will continue in just a moment. No longer the guy peeping in the window at what other people were doing. I was no longer the guy listening to their speaker, re reading their books. I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've never stopped being since. Tremendously important day's work for me. And when I got through, I didn't particularly want to do the fifth. I needed to do the fifth. And at that point in my sobriety, I had, had two sponsors. One of them was a, fellow, was a guy from the outside, great guy. I loved him dearly. He's my sponsor till, till, till he died. And I had another one who was a fellow inmate. And he was a fine guy as well. And when I got to needing to take that fifth, I, I spent time with the, the, the fellow who was an inmate. I, I just didn't have the, the drive or the, 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 the courage to, to deal with the outside guy. So I kept talking to the, to, the, to, the, to the inmate guy about who I could get to do this. And they say we ought to be very careful about this important step, and I believe it. I had a lot of people to choose from when I started looking for folks. I had about 6,000 inmates in there. Any one of them would have listened, I'm sure. I had about three or 4,000 staff that I trusted less than the inmates. And, uh, and, I, and everybody I would think of, I, I could immediately dismiss. And then you know, I catch on real slow. Finally dawned on me that I was talking to the guy I ought to talk to. And I sat down on what looked like a park bench in the middle of a maximum custody prison with 6,000 yo-yos milling around. And I opened up for the first time in my entire life to another human being. For the first time in my entire life, I let somebody else know who I was. For the first time in my entire life, learned to trust and believe and, and, and let go with another human being. I, you know, some people say that that's a kind of a, of a mediocre experience, certainly not. I usually think it's people who've done a production line fifth in a treatment center or something, because for me, that was a tremendously important occasion. You know, I was a man freed. I was a man absolutely euphoric as a result of that, of that process. I, I'm reminded, you know, I, I'm a fellow who, I, I like symbolism a lot, and, and uh, yeah, every time I think about the fifth step, I, I think about that uh, experience that's going over in the Eastern Bloc countries right now, and and particularly that thing with the, the, the Berlin Wall. Do you remember that? Yeah, I don't know if you saw any connection to this or not, but I, I know the thing that came to mind when I thought about you know, what the step does 
in terms of impacting on this self-centered, isolated disease that we call alcoholism was much like what seemed to be experienced by those people there. Now, here were people who had been in bondage for 50 years and been suppressed and locked away. And then you started to see that, that, that insistence on freedom. You started to see it build up. And you started to see people who wouldn't be contained any longer. And they started to, visual, to, to, to put the visibility to that wall as the symbol. And they started to thank God for the way they did it. Thank God they didn't go in and bomb it or bring in bulldozers. Remember how they did it? Citizens took hammers and chisels. And they went in and they pecked away and pecked. Well, obviously, they weren't going to get rid of the wall. But how important it was for them to have the opportunity to participate in tearing down that wall that divided them. And that's exactly what I saw in this, was, was the beginning of a breach in that wall of, 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 of imprisonment, of glass imprisonment, where I was locked away in self-centered isolation. What a tremendously liberating experience. And then we got to a place where yeah, I really thought for a while that, uh, that, that, that 6 and 7 were essentially filler material. I, I, some folks say that, that, uh, that Bill sort of strung those steps out to, uh, to fill up the space and uh, speculated about a lot of stuff in there. And I really didn't put a lot of attachment to him other than it looked like another opportunity to get religion. And uh, that it, I saw it as relatively innocuous. But God, did I ever change my mind about that? Because what I came to believe was that those steps are probably the most important transaction in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the way I see it, it, it really is sort of like one of our old evangelists that comes out of North Carolina, a guy, your namesake, Billy G. Where he, he talks about a thing called decision time. And that's exactly what I see in, in, in 6 and 7. It, it talks about being entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. And that sounds like a given almost, doesn't it? until I really start to hear what it says. And what I realized that I had grave concerns, grave questions about whether I was really willing to let go. And basically what it came down to was truly decision time. It became the place in my life where I had to face some issues. Do I really want to get well or don't I? Do I really want to be free or don't I? Am I really willing to pay a price or aren't I? Who is this guy? What's important to me as a human being? Am I truly ready to change? And I don't know about you, but what I had to do was to reach some points of decision in my life about who I was and deal with some things I didn't even know anything about. Things like values. I didn't even know what values were except for, for the price of a watch in a hock shop or something. I didn't know what values were. And I had to get acquainted with values and learn what it is that I stand for. Standards. I had to become acquainted with standards. standards of behavior, standards of morality. Yes, indeed, those are indeed ingredients that go into genuine recovery. Some folks say that you can be a sober bank robber and you'll be a better rank bank robber. I simply don't believe that. I believe that I've got to change if I would be free. And what this step's about is starting to decide, you know, by now I've taken a look at my disease. I know who he is. I know what he looks like. I know where the bondage comes from that's had me in captivity all of my life. And the decision is, do I want to do something about it? And it's not an easy place. I'll let you know a little secret. Wimps don't make it in Alcoholics Anonymous. They won't pay the price. They won't pay the price. I don't know of any member of Alcoholics Anonymous with any long-term sobriety who hasn't paid a dear price, who hasn't been tested 
particularly in the area of his ethical values and his integrity. Not a single one. I have to learn how to say no when yes is so easy. I have to learn to stand up for what I believe. And I have to be tough enough to do the things that come. You know, some folks speculate about why the founder used, used, uh, used defects in, in, in six and shortcomings in, in, in seven and say that he didn't want to be repetitious. I really see a little different. And, and I, I see it kind of like the old biblical reference. You know the, where they refer to the sins of commission and the sins of omission. You know, my defects of character is what my alcoholism looked like. My sins of commission is what I did. It's what, what my behavior was like. And my sins of omission were simply, my shortcomings simply were the other side of the coin. For example, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah, I was a guy who hated everything that lived and breathed. I didn't like anything that lived and breathed. And what I've learned is that hate and love don't coexist. And what happened is I'm not somebody, you may be, but I'm not somebody who has ever knowingly solved a problem in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't remember one single time when I've sat in a meeting and said, by golly, that's it. Not once. It really is a journey, not a destination. Because what I find is that I sit in a meeting and one day I'm aware that I don't feel like I used to. Take hate. You know, hate and love don't coexist. And what I got introduced to in Alcoholics Anonymous was a thing called love. And as love started to be a factor in my life, it started to push hate away. And that's really what it's been, is just sort of seeking a balance in the emotions of my life and being free. A tough place, a place to start. You know, and, and essentially, that part of the program, four through seven to me, have to do with my relationship with myself, with getting acquainted with who I am, what's important to me, what I stand for, what I'm willing to do. And then we move into what I think is the most important part of the program, the greatest adventure that I've ever known. I don't know about you, but when I walked into that first meeting that first day, although I didn't know it, I started the greatest adventure that I could possibly imagine. That's a fact. That's not a nice poetic thing to say. That's a fact. If the adventure had been any greater, I couldn't have stood it. The greatest adventure I've ever known. And I really believe that from this point forward in the program is what makes that come alive. You know, I don't think there's anything adventurous about not drinking whiskey. I know some people who don't drink whiskey that I wish did. They, they're miserable folk, painful folk to be around. You know, that, uh, they're just better people. My wife is, is, I mean, I love that girl, but I swear to God, she's a little better when she's had a drink than she is when she's sober. And I can't get her to drink much. You know, this, you know, I know people, not just her, but people, you, you know what I'm talking about. You got, not drinking whiskey is not an adventure. Just being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is not an adventure. I know members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are bored to tears. I know members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are miserable every meeting they attend. I know members of Alcoholics Anonymous who have no more recovery than a poodle. You know, being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous does not produce recovery. Let me push that just a little bit further. Working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous does not necessarily produce an adventure. I know people, it's impossible to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with a totally self-centered attitude. I know people who spend their lives working steps and taking their emotional pulse every day of their lives who never get beyond working on me. I just quit sponsoring a guy after seven years 
because I couldn't get him to go past step five. He loved all that stuff of self-examination and let's look at me and talk about how I hurt. That does not produce an adventure. You know, the adventure comes in... Well, let me just share where, 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 I, th where I think it comes from. It has to do with being a full-fledged member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this segment of the program, I think, is what starts to push it into existence. You know, our founder... You know, from here on out, we're talking about things that link me up with other people. Things that link me up with the world. Our founder described Alcoholics Anonymous as a new way of life. He didn't describe it as some subterranean existence for alcoholics. He didn't describe it as some subculture where drunks met in secret. He described it as a program that reunites us and makes us citizens of the world. He talked about how to bring us back into our communities, back into our families, not how to operate in isolation. And, that, and the way we start to do it, you know, it says that we list the people we've harmed and, and become willing to make amends. And, and that, again, sounds repetitious. Why well, make a list? We just did it. And what I, did, what I observed is, 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 is what many others have, that when the list existed in my mind and just out of the fourth, it was a horrendous list. And when I thought about it, it only grew. When I put it down on paper, it shrunk. And what I found was a rather small but formidable list of people that I'd heard most people had better sense than to let me hurt them. There were some people who couldn't get away. Yeah, my family were trapped. You know, and, and there were people. It was a rather small list. And then the surprise that I found, like many others, and why the key word of willingness was put there, was that I simply wasn't willing. I wasn't willing. In every, almost every case where I felt that I owed amends, I felt even more that amends were, were owed to me. And what I found was that before I could even think of amends, I had to first be willing to forgive. And I had to recognize that what we're talking about here is not some humanitarian effort. It's not some real benevolent thing that I do with people. It's a thing that's very selfish. It has to do with making me free of the things that have me by Those warped and distorted and tangled and painful relationships that make up my life. And I make the list and I become willing by forgiving them. And God knows how I have to watch out for that old instinctive manipulation of setting it up so that I will, so that I can gain a certain thing with a certain person and realize that what we're talking about is cleaning off my side of the street. It's not about the Better Business Bureau. And getting that list and become, become willing. Then it calls for direct amends. Doesn't say that we write them a letter. Unless that's the only way to do it. Doesn't say we call them up. Doesn't say we meet them at a meeting. It doesn't say that we uh, let them figure out that we're sorry because we're sober and that's enough. Doesn't say that. Guideline in this step is to be tough on ourselves and easy on others. I was down in Texas a while back. And there was a guy. The guy, guy had a, well, a real sleek sports car. Drove up. And I was intrigued by the front tag on one of those vanity places. It said, uh, Step 9. <laughs> And I looked at the thing, and I, I kind of figured what it was. And, and normally, I don't mess with folks much. But that would just bothered me a lot. And I, and I sought him out. I said, tell me about your license plate. And he said, my God, I had an awful time. And that car is amends to me. And I, I, said, I said, well, that's real nice, honey. But it ain't got much to do with step nine. You know, that's a, you know, some people say we ought to put ourselves at the head of the list. You won't hear me say that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't need any step to cause me to work on my ego and feeling. My God, that's what the whole program's about. But the way I do it is in a strange way. It talks about tough on me, easy on them, calls for direct amends. Let me, let me give you one example of what, the, you know, you really, 
you really have trouble, I guess, I do, comprehending how deep-seated this, this program is. You know, I mentioned about my dad. I never saw my dad, and that's a fact. I never saw him from the time he left us when I was four years old. There were two times that I saw him in my early, early, uh, early childhood, both times disturbing and disappointing and frustrating experiences. And, 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 and if you had asked me in my first 10 or 12 years of sobriety about my father, I would have just simply said, there is none. You know, there is no father, never has been. There's no factor in my life. I didn't understand. I didn't understand that you don't really push it away quite that easily. And then what I started to understand was not only was there a father in my life in a very troubled relationship, but I started to become aware that I had to go make amends to the dude. Now you talk about a schizoid conversation. You got to go make amends. Oh no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, the only thing this cat's ever done in his life is got my mother pregnant and left. You know, and never did a fatherly deed in his entire life. And I'm going to go make amends to him? Uh-uh, not hardly. And then I started to understand again what the step's about. The step's about clearing out those things that produce that cold, hard knot in my stomach. That sort of thing that keeps me a little bit on edge. That sort of thing that, that owns a piece of my mind. Those things that are buried deeply, I think, but that insist on coming to the surface. And I started to realize that I had to go. And realize that this step had nothing to do with my father's ability to be a father. It had to do with my sonhood, not his fatherhood. And I went and looked him up. Didn't even know him. Found him. Walked up and introduced myself. And he didn't know me from a house cat. And told him why I was there. And we sat down. We had an awkward little visit for a few minutes. And then I told him my business. And we sat down. This story doesn't have a happy ending in terms of reunion or going fishing or any of that stuff. It does in terms of recovery. Because what we did was sit down. And I made amends to the man the best I could in terms of amending. Our, you know, this step's not about just apologies or paying money. It's about amending my relationships with the world, about amending my relationships in areas where they're distorted. And it's about freeing me. It's a very selfish activity. And the outcome measured by him is not the, the, the issue at all. And what happened with that was that I became free of that relationship. And I, you know, we never did have a reunion. You know, I was able to be a son to the man. And when he died, I was able to help his family deal with the funeral. And I have no malice toward, toward the man. And that's really what it's about. You don't really realize how deep-seated this goes. But what this step's about, you know, we use a reference in this program about being free of the obsession. And what it has to do with is being free of those things that own me. And my secrets, those things that are buried deeply, are what own my mind. And well, if I would be free, I have to, to seek these out. And that's what this program does, is helps me find the things that keep me in bondage. And then it moves on into what some folks call maintenance steps, but I think they're very active steps. It, 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 it says that I ought to continue to look at myself, to take inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. Now, when I first looked at that proposal, I thought it had to do with being a chronic kind of doormat. I, I really thought it had to do with apologizing every day of my life for breathing, uh, a kind of a doormat thing. But, I, but I've long since quit believing that. It really has to do with just sort of keeping things out, keeping my garden weeded. Not let, you know, what is it that gets folks drunk? What is it that causes us to lose members? It's been my observation 
If you didn't hear it in Rusty's story tonight, what I'm going to talk about, you ain't never going to hear it. The things that throw us are not big deals. I have rarely seen alcoholics or Alanons lose it because of big deals. That's not what does it. What I see causing us to lose it are not dealing with those little things that are too little to address and too big to go away. And they linger on and build up until they produce a peculiar thing that we call stinking thinking. And then one day, those things that at one point would have been unthinkable become very logical, like having a drink. Or I find myself reacting in a total rage to nothing. And it's the buildup. I, I heard uh, resentment defined, the number one offender defined one time in a way that I truly believe. It's an irritation that turns inward and gets infected. And how true that is. Those little things turn in, they build up and build up and build up. Now, alcoholics truly don't get sober or get, get in trouble over big deals. I don't know if you've had the occasion to see it many more times than you've seen it here this weekend. But you take a look around and watch how alcoholics deal with adversity. I've seen examples of absolute courage in this program that defy imagination. Watch alcoholics deal with their own terminality when they know that they're going to die. Watch how they deal with it. Never seen anything quite like it. Now this step has to do with being free of the things that take over my mind. And then it, it, then it moves me into to, to, uh, trying to keep my mind right. You know, trying to, to, to improve my mind by seeking through prayer meditation to improve my conscious contact. And that simply means to me to, to, to more than just pray and meditate. It means to try to, to improve my knowledge. And, and, and I do a, a lot of different ways. Yeah, a lot of ways. By active meditation for sure. But I also, I read. I'm an avid reader. I've always read, read every day of my life. And it's partly to keep me intellectually as sharp as I can be and to improve my spiritual base. For what? I seek to improve my contact with God, praying for knowledge of His will for us. Let me risk one other thing. I don't want to give advice or try to drag you under my tent, but, but let me share one thing with you. Just as sort of a collective thought. This is my belief. I believe for every person here tonight, every person who is working this 12-step program of recovery, at some point, at some point, in your program of recovery, there will come a time when an avenue of service will open to you. It'll open. And I believe, one guy's opinion, that without any question, without any question, the quality of your sobriety will hinge on whether you accept it or reject it. And I believe the quantity of sobriety will hinge just as well. Now that may not be right, I just happen to believe it. Somebody's going to come up to you, they already have. Somebody's going to come up. I don't know who put this tent up. I don't know if any guys did it or not. It looks good. Somebody came up to the guys working on this committee of this conference and said, let's get together and agonize through putting on the Autumn and the Ozarks conference. And some said, by golly, I'll do it. And I'll guarantee you they've grown 10 feet tall from the experience. Others said, I'm too busy. Or I don't like the politics of it. 
And I'll guarantee you, you became diminished as a member as a result. Somebody's going to walk up to you and say, how about telling your story? And you're either going to say, I'll do the best I can. And experience the joy that only comes from sharing. Are you going to say, oh, nobody wants to hear. Or I'm too busy. Or I don't like to talk. The avenue of service opens. The thing I have to learn in this program, we say it's a selfish program and it truly is. But it's a peculiar kind of selfishness. It's about 10% gimme and it's about 90% give. And if I can't learn that strange but paradoxical truth that I only give it away when I keep it, I missed a whole boat. If I can't learn that Alcoholics Anonymous is not just some kind of weird group therapy for drunks, I missed a whole boat. If I can't learn the joy of giving that's reflected in my living, missed a whole boat and it comes you know i think it comes in this process that i'm talking about right now what's god's will for me and then the power to carry it out and then it follows up with how to take action that it says basically three things to me in the last one it says that that it basically the way i i I feel about it it says that if i do the roughly 200 words that lay out this program in the steps if i do it i'll have a spiritual awakening A new way of feeling, a new way of thinking. I'm not a new person. I'm essentially the same guy. All i got to do to visit with him again is quit doing the things that I do. And there he is. But he says I'll have a spiritual way. I don't have to do anything. It's the process. eh? It just produces the process. That'll happen to me, whether I want it to or not. Just do what it says, and it happens. And then having had that happen, tell somebody about it. Just share it with other people. Share it with other alcoholics. And we make sponsorship sometimes sound like it's the Oral Roberts of AA. And it really isn't all that big a deal. It's just one drunk telling another one what he did. That's all. You know, it would be Sigmund Freud. You know, you just tell somebody what happened. My God, you don't have to dress it up. It's unbelievable anyway. Just tell, just tell them about it. We try to carry the message to other people. A thousand different ways. A thousand different ways. The guys that work it here know about it. This is one of the ways we do it. What I'm doing here tonight is one of the ways. Now, I, you know, I, you know, I do a, a, a lot of things in alcoholics. I mean, I do this about every week of my life somewhere, two or three times, most weeks. And I don't minimize it. I think it's tremendously important. I think the story of every alcoholic, Al-Anon, Alateen, is tremendously important. And I believe that for every one of us, somebody needs to hear our story, our story. I believe that the story of recovery is tremendously important. I am very uncomfortable with regions, and this is one of them, where discussion meetings are predominant over speaker meetings because I think it's awfully important to have a balance where I not only work on those things that I need to share in discussion meetings, but where I pay my undivided attention to another alcoholic and I listen to somebody's story. Tremendously important. So I don't minimize this. But it's certainly not the most important thing that I do. What I do, I'm a member of a home group. My most important work's done right there. And it ain't done from a podium. I, I think of all the things that I do, probably the most important is that, you know, I'm a guy that hangs around meetings, and I kind of look for the wounded ones. That's who I look for. I look for folks that are not gregarious and outgoing. 
I look for wallflowers. I look for the ones that ain't too pretty. And I go over to them, and I just visit a little bit. I don't mean I harangue them and give them a whole bunch of advice. I just go over and let them know who I am and that I care about them. Most important message I ever had carried had no words. It just had to do with paying attention and communicating that I, honest to God, gave a damn about another drunk. That's all. That's the most important thing that I... And then it says that that's the active thing. That's where the adventure comes from. That's where the joy comes from. And then it says to practice the principles of my affairs. That's a simple order. Now, anybody could be a, a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous under this tent in Bull Shoals, Arkansas. Take an idiot not to be a good member here. <laughs> well, what about tomorrow? <laughs> what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow when we, you know, we, we strike the tent tomorrow, I guess, and then we go our separate ways? And within minutes after we drive away from this place, we'll still enjoy the beauty, but it'll be as if it never happened. The only thing we'll carry away is what's in our hearts and a few souvenirs. But it'll be as if it never happened. We'll go right back into the world. And that's where we'll find out what kind of members we are. That's where we'll find out whether we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous or just folks who attend meetings. Now, what'll I do? What'll I do? What'll I do when I get on these mountain roads and get behind some poor old fellow scared to death driving 28 miles an hour? And I'm in such a hurry. How am I going to react? Am I going to be patient and wait for an opportunity to pass? Am I going to act like a three-year-old kid? What am I going to do? What will I do when I get off to the, I'll, I'll, I'll get back home tomorrow night, uh, well, I'll get back in about 1 a.m. Monday. And what am I going to do when I walk in if I've got a crisis at my house? Say, don't you understand I've got jet lag? <laughs> don't you understand I'm worn out from trying to cure razorbacks? Don't you? <laughs> what am I going to do? Yeah. How about on my job? What about when I get back to work? Got to do a little surgery Monday, but when I get back to work, what kind of an employee am I going to be? Am I going to be somebody who works in the interest of my company? Or am I going to be somebody who can only think of gimme, gimme, gimme? What am I going to do in my community? What kind of a member am I? How do I carry myself in my community? Now, I can talk anonymity all I want to, but I ain't kidding nobody but me. Everybody in my town. I got a letter at home one time, and the only thing on the envelope was AA. It came to my house. <laughs> yes. I suggest there's a little responsibility goes with that. You know, how do I carry myself? At home, you know, strangely enough, and I'm going to wrap up on this, strangely enough, the toughest place to do it is home. Toughest place. The people who know me best, the people who see me when I come in off a trip, the people who see me when I wake up in the morning look like a wild man. People who see me when I come in, I don't feel like I can handle one more human. How do I deal with that? Toughest place, the toughest person that I have to practice the principle with is the, is the little girl that's pledged her life with my toughest place. Strangely enough. But I, I would submit to you that if I don't practice it there, I have no principles. That's where the test is done. And the beauty of this thing is that it does indeed produce a brand new way to live. Now, I'm not any paragon of virtue on this, 
But I'm a tremendously fortunate man in the sense that I have a wife. We just celebrated 23 years of continuous marriage. And I'm very grateful for that. Our, our marriage is, is, honest to God, warmer and more loving today than it's ever been. I'm very anxious to get home and see the little calf. Tremendously important thing. She's never seen her husband drunk. She's very active in Al-Anon. She's never seen her husband drunk. I'm grateful for that. Got a couple of little guys that aren't so little anymore. And I guess the point of this is about a home where recovery even exists. And I know that many people have problems with their children, and I don't mean to gloat about this, but I'm enormously grateful for what this program's meant in my home. Because my home is a home where AA lives. My kids have been going to meetings ever since they were carried in on those little old boards, whatever you call them. It's a way of life for them. And today I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I've got a daughter that's a junior at Union CG in Greensboro, North Carolina. Fine girl. She's going to be a She's studying psychology and early, early childhood development. And I think she's going to be good. One time I thought she was a dipstick. I really did not think that girl was going to do well. But she's doing great in spite of her dad. And I've got a son in his first year of med school. And uh, I'm very proud of that young man. He's doing well. Youngest guy in the class and is leading the class right now. Youngest guy. Now, those kids aren't superior kids. They're not kids that have more intelligence or anything. They, they certainly didn't inherit anything from their dad in the, in the way of intelligence or drive or anything. Their mother might have influenced them a little. I really think the thing that's been critically important, and what this program's really about, is that those kids grew up in a home where recovery lived. Never once have they heard the sound of flesh on flesh in anger in my home. Never once have they heard cruel and vindictive language and nastiness and filth in my home. Never once have they had to be embarrassed about bringing their friends home. It's a home where recovery lives, and it's a home where a kid could grow up comfortable. And while we couldn't coach them in doing all the new fancy things they do, what we could do was give them love and care and support. And I guess when you get right down to it, that's what this is all about. It's about taking my place in the world. There's a line in the 12 and 12 in the foreword that basically says, I can't quote nothing, but what it basically says is that ours is a program that'll free us of the obsession to drink and will render the sufferer usefully whole. And I'm a guy who has had that come true in his life. The good news is that this miracle, this joy, this adventure is available to any person who wants it. If you'll just jump on in and pay the price. Thanks, folks. Thanks.